Welcome to Rogue Bogues, the Journey Podcast, Episode 2. Let's get rogue. So in Episode 1, we finished up talking about playing for the Interview Hills Redbacks and scoring my first free throw, first basket, and, and all that excitement. So now we move on to where I'd got into a team that was a bit more structured and organized and at a high level. It was A-grade domestic at the Danong Basketball Stadium. It was a club called DBYC Dufton Boys Youth Club, under-12s. Head coach was a man by the name of Daniel Ramanowskis, who was the brother of Essendon footballer and Essendon great Adam Ramanowskis. The Ramanowskis were heavily involved in Danong basketball that period. Adam had, um, I, th- I believe he was a state representative at one point, but elected to go play footy, and I think it was drafted number 12 at some point in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think it was, and um, also went to my high school, so a bit of an affiliation there. Played for the DBYC and, and then got invited or got told to go to Danong Rangers tryouts for the rep team. So for those not familiar with Australian basketball or any American or international listeners, uh, you basically play domestic, which is equivalent to like a local rec league where you play for um, just a a local club against other local clubs at at one stadium. Then if you become good enough, you get invited to represent that whole stadium against kind of other stadiums. And that's what the Danong Rangers were. So I tried out for that, made the second team, which was funnily enough coached by Joe Romanaskis, who was the father of Daniel and Adam. So that, that all went well. Um, I made the second team, but our second team ended up being better than the first team that year. Um, so the first team coach was a little mad because he thought that Joe had, had stolen a few first team plays for the seconds, um, knowing that they would be better than they, they were. But um, that was all good. You know, really was enjoying being part of something structured and organized, two trainings a week. So I was starting to, get, you know, get a bit more serious, but not, not crazy. So then started playing domestic basketball wherever I could. DBYC was the first. And then. Uh, my dad, we kind of played for a few other teams, Narry Jacks and Berwick, and even drove out to Donana Wadding and played for the Vermont Vultures at some point. And then my dad kind of you know, got frustrated with the kind of politics of junior sport, which you get everywhere. Parents that are overly involved, the parents baking cakes and cookies for the coach and their son all of a sudden playing more minutes. And then we found out that there was, you know, there'd be a a coach um, would be dating a, a sister of one of the kids he's coaching who's a bit old, you know, all that kind of shit went on. And um, so my father just was like, we're going to form our own team. And we did that. It was called the Spartans. It lasted one season. It was decent. I still remember he put, he, you know, he's good with his hands. He made us a um, out of wood uh, drink bottle holders for the whole team, painted Spartans in all the colors. It was um, aqua blue, black, and red. Uh, pretty cool colors. We lasted a season. We weren't very well liked as a club just because we were essentially a rogue club that they didn't really like. And a lot of times we also had only four players turn up for games. So we could still play, but we had four players. A few times we were close to, to forfeiting because we had three and someone would show up late. So the association didn't really like us. And rightfully so, to be honest with you, it was I was doing the right thing showing up, but there was a lot of kids that said they wanted to play and then they'd, they'd show up you know, every other week and cause all kinds of problems. So, But basically I tried to play basketball wherever I could and whenever I could and and really enjoyed that aspect of it. Dan Long Basketball Stadium was where it all started for me. So moving on from that, an off-court tidbit was the fun time of of, of when I almost died. <laughs> so in episode one, I touched on um, a kid named Marco, a Croatian kid lit up the street. Him and I were a troublesome pair. We'd do all kinds of dumb stuff together. And so he had taught me how to make some bombs, right, called soda bombs. And... They're basically made with soda bulbs. A soda bulb is something that I I now hear these days kids are taking them to get high. It's basically a metal gas canister. Um, you can't open it without a 
kind of a machine, you need a special machine to open them. People that have had soda stream machines or make their own soft drinks, you'll have a big a big one the size of a bottle that goes in the back of your machine. And basically, it's got gas in it. It, it fizzes up drinks. I think the smaller ones are used for icing sugar or fizzing, you know, fizzing things up. And Marco had shown me a way that if you get these things really hot, they not only do they make a, a fantastic light show at night, they um, create a, a bang that's louder than a gunshot. So he teaches me how to do this. So I start doing them by myself, go to the supermarket and buy these things for 5 or $6. It got to a point where all the kids were making them essentially and they started putting them where the cigarettes were. You had to kind of show an ID. That's how crazy it got. I did it for about you know six months to a year. It got to a point where I'd go and hang out with kind of DBYC or Dandong Rangers and after a game, we'd go to a parent's house and have a barbecue and... I'd bring some and show them and thought I was the coolest kid because I could make bombs. So one day I decided to show my dad in the front yard um, and it was kind of dusk. It was at night, you know, it was getting dark and I was like, gonna be, he'll love this. This is awesome. Like I know how to make a bomb. So I light this thing, run around, stand next to him, makes the big bang, it fizzes up and you hear like a, you hear something hit the car. I didn't hear it. My dad's like, something just hit the car. I'm like, no, it didn't. He's like, yeah, something just hit the car. Don't do that shit anymore. So here I was as, you know, you're a dumb young kid. We're blowing blowing these things up. You never thought that the piece of metal, the shrapnel, it's going somewhere. We've just been lucky it hasn't hit us or gone near us to notice, right? So we just thought, oh, must just disintegrate. Who knows? I was never great at science as a kid. I'm going to be honest with you. So we just thought it disappeared into thin air. But my dad's like, I don't want you doing that shit again. So I'm like, okay, cool. Don't listen to him. Kept doing it. One day, come home from school early. Mum's out walking the dogs. Dad's still at work. It's about four o'clock. Sister's home. Sister hasn't seen one before. I check this out. Watch this. So I make it. I'm gonna light this one in the in the front yard on the footpath and have front row seats. I'll run back into my house through the front door and stand right in front of the lounge room window. And beautiful, mate. Bird's eye view, front row. Do it. Light it. Run around. Just as this thing's about to go off, because basically they they light up and they make a big bright red, you know, light of of a fire. And then it can take anywhere from you know, one to. T- 10 seconds sometimes for the things to go off. So in anticipation of the loud bang, I kind of was half ducking, like, you know, about to duck because it's going to be a massive loud bang. And something gave me the intuition to, to do that. And as soon as I was about to hear the bang, I, I ducked and that thing came straight over my head through the window, head height, where I, exactly where I was standing. And by, by through the window, I mean this thing put a perfect round hole. They're, they're small cylinders. So, I mean, they're, they're three or four times the kind of the size of what a what, what a pen would be going through a window it's a decent size hole like if you make the okay sign with your finger it's kind of that size straight through still smoking through the window the window didn't break you just put a hole straight in it so you can you can imagine this thing going through the window if that hit me in the head gonski we end up finding <laughs> the piece of shrapnel went all the way kind of through the window and down near our staircase under the tv wall unit found that one day when we were cleaning i ended up finding it like a year later and kept it as a souvenir, it was all black and smoky and just like, so now I've broke my window. I'm not scared about breaking the window. I'm scared about the fact that my dad specifically told me, don't do that shit again. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So at first I'm like, I didn't realize, I didn't think about what my dad said. At first I'm like, I, I just broke the window. I'm about to get shit for breaking the window. Let me go find a, I was trying to find a baseball or a cricket ball to throw through the window that made a similar size hole. But I'm like, now that I think about it, I should have just broken the window completely and, and shattered the whole thing and no one would have known the difference, right? You're kidding, you're stupid at that point. So my sister's basically like, man, you're in some shit. <laughs> you're in deep shit. They're basically laughing at me. I panic. I just lived across the road. We lived on a crescent that was across the road from a court. I basically sprint 
out of the door and just run. Gone. At the end of that court, there's a pathway that cuts through the houses that goes down to another court that then goes down to a reserve. So that's how I'd walk to primary school back in the day. So I run that way. Of course, who's coming kind of up the path as I'm going down? My mom with the dogs. I'm running like yelping, like, you know, half crying, half shitting myself and just in a panic running. She's like, stop, stop. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Barely heard her, saw her head down, just kept running. Didn't stop. So my old lady gets home. She obviously thinks my sister beat the shit out of me or something happened. My sister's five years older. And, and yes, she did beat the shit out of me when I was a kid. She could, she could go. She was a brawler. And um, I try to stay away from her as much as possible to the point where I'd actually get her to come and try to beat people up for me in like primary school because <laughs> she could go. She still can to this day. And so I, I, I keep running. And at that point, it's 4.30, 5 o'clock. It's starting to get dark. What do I do? So I go to the Devil Shopping Center, of course, on a weeknight. One of those guys, it's you know, hanging out at a shopping center and no one's really there and they're about to shut. So I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? So I find a payphone. So back in the day, you could call, you know, payphones were everywhere and you call it toll-free numbers. I ended up finding the phone number. I called um, 013 at the time, which was the directory. Give me the number for Kids Helpline. Give me the number. I called Kids Helpline. said, gave my name where I lived. I said, you need to help me. My dad's going to beat the shit out of me. Like, what do you mean? What happened? I'm like, I can't go home right now because my dad, I got in trouble. My dad's going to beat the shit out of me. I didn't tell him I blew up my front window. That's 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 not important at this point. They need to help me. So I thought it was, you know, kids helpline. They could send out a little little van that comes, picks you up and takes you somewhere and houses you overnight and you eat some food and go to bed and have some hot chocolate. But they basically like, do you have any family that lives close by? I said, no, my grandma lives on another side of town. My other grandma lives near Ballarat in the country. Like, I can't get tra- transport out there. I have no money. I have nothing. I have nothing on me. You need to help me. And basically that got nowhere hung up on them. So I get to a point where I'm like, all right, I'm going to walk home. I have to suck it up and just go home. So I, I get to kind of the front of my house almost. And my parents' bedroom and bathroom is all street side on the second level of the house, right? There's two massive windows. One of them is the master bedroom and the other one is the master bathroom. I can hear them in the shower arguing basically like, I don't know what this kid's doing, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's going to kill himself or, you know, losing it. So, all right, that's it's like a little jab. It's put me on my on my, on my my back foot. <laughs> so then I didn't go in. Across the street, we have a uh, electricity box, the size of a car park, essentially, what a car would fit in, electricity box. So I, I um, go and hide behind the electricity box on the other side of it between the, the back fence and the electricity box and so no one can see me street side. And I'm just sitting there listening to them arguing. And it's, you know, stressing me out even more. I'm like, oh, I can't go. I'm not going to go home to this. So the neighbor that lives next door to the electricity box, we kind of, it was a high buy type neighbor. We weren't close friends or anything, but he gets home from work at like nine o'clock and I'm like half weeping. It's freezing. I'm lying on on, on rocks and he hears me there and he comes out and um, you okay, mate? What's going on? And then goes, tells my parents I'm there and I finally get taken inside. And um, my dad didn't really say much to me. You know, he knew my stress levels were high. I was shaking. I was shit myself. I was just waiting to copper, copper hiding, and I didn't, I didn't get one. Um, and basically, just got the. T- I told you so, which I knew was coming, and got on with it. But I never touched that shit ever again. Um, get to school the next day. All my friends knew. Um, every one of them knew. They all give me shit about it because my parents had called all my friends asking if I was there. So when I was talking about my mate Daniel on, on podcast one on, on episode one of um, my journey. I told him, I go, I gave you a shout out on, on the podcast about when you got grounded for a year. He goes, don't make me come on there and tell everyone about um, when you blew up your front window with a, with a soda bomb. And I said, mate, it's on the next episode. Oh, we don't mess around here. We go hard. So yeah, man, it was literally near death. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not putting, I'm not putting sauce on it. I'm not overhyping it. 
Um, you can ask my sister this day. The thing went straight straight past my head, bullet hole, so, you know, uh, like a bullet, bigger than a bullet, but straight through the window and very lucky to be alive. So we move on from that. We get to high school, transitioning from Thomas Mitchell Primary School. I go to a, a Catholic high school, St. John's Regional College in Dandenong. Very, very strict school. Very, very strict school. Uh, gray slacks, button-up shirt, tie, jacket, black dress shoes, which were a problem for me to find because my foot was growing rapidly. But anyway, um, not many of my friends from Thomas Mitchell transitioned to St. John's. They all went from Thomas Mitchell to a sister high school called Glen Eagles, which was down the street or whatever. It was a 10-minute, 15-minute walk. I ended up going there because I can't even remember. I think a good mate was going there or something. And I don't know. I, I can't remember why I wanted to go there so specifically, but parents ended up forking out a bit of cash for the private school. And it was, it was very, very strict, but it was... Yeah, the uniform thing was was crazy. Like from year eight on, was they hired an ex army army dude or navy dude or some shit, and he um his sole job he was a uniform infringement officer. He'd walk around before school, uh, recess, lunchtime, and after school, even if you were walking to the shops or your bus, and if your uniform wasn't worn correctly, this meant if you change your shoes to runners after school, if you uh, a lot of us would undo our top buttons and hide our tie kind of under the top button undone just because it'd give you a bit more comfort. It wasn't too tight. If that was caught, if your tie wasn't on properly, if your shirt wasn't tucked in, that was a big one. You'd get a pink slip um, infringement notice, which then um, gave you the beautiful prize of getting a lunchtime detention. You get three of those babies, you got an after school. So that's how strict the school was and something you had to bye-bye. So Get to school, bullied almost immediately by older kids. I was in year seven, I was still pretty tall. A lot of the older kids were having a crack and, and it was just something I had to navigate. Um, then there was the first time I really got involved or heard the WOG thing and you know the WOGs versus Skips thing um, happened a little bit in high school, as stupid as it was. You, you ended up making friends with the Skips, quote unquote, later on in your high school life and realize they're good people just like anybody else. But I was that kid in high school that had half a tub of gel in his hair Blonde tips, you know, earrings, all that kind of shit. And, um, you know, you were an easy target, like, you know, gel head and all that kind of shit, greasy, greaser, um, wog, whatever. So we, we used to have some fun with that, but there was a lot of wogs there as well. So it was a bit, bit, bit of banter more than anything, but there were a few scuffles here and there, but nothing too serious with that. But the bullying thing for me was, was hard because a lot of the older kids, excuse my language right now, but everywhere I walked from older kids, I'd copy lanky cunt, um, wherever I went. And I still, you know, to this day, hear that word and I'm ready to go. Unfortunately, a lot of it was from older kids that were bigger and stronger than me that I knew I'd get my ear kicked in if I had a crack. And there were certain parts of school where I couldn't, I knew not to go. You know, you know whether you're 12s, Zang, you know whether you're 11s, Zang, you're 10s, you know, all, all that stuff. And, and, and so it goes, but it's, it's pretty stressful at times knowing that I'm not going to go over there because these blokes are there, these guys are going to say something. So you just kind of had to navigate with your... Head on a swivel to an extent, uh, wherever you went, and there were there were dog days that I hated going to school, and there were days that were okay, but for the most part, it was just one of those things I had to deal with. And yeah, I mean, so we get to um, year seven, first term, last day of first term, I don't know, was April, right before Easter holidays, probably, and um, I get suspended on the last day of term one. Didn't get in trouble the whole term, did pretty well, and this Maltese kid, we're, we're doing. Um, changing classes so it was interchange we walked to your next class and i guess he said something to me and i picked him up and threw him into a locker and back then it's probably still the same but i probably changed it but the locks back then man you could you could take someone out with these locks that was it was a metal clasp had the big knob with the number on it that you turned uh, left to the right and to the left and then you, you snapped the lock open but he, he cracked his head on that lock on a locker that wasn't that was on a locker already right goes down crying 
everyone's laughing at him, calling him a pussy and whatever. So he was he was heavily embarrassed by it. Teacher comes running out of the classroom. What happened? What happened? What happened? He tells the teacher that I laid into him basically that I, I punched him in the stomach and whatnot. So I get sent to the coordinator's office. The coordinator's being told that story by a teacher. And the coordinator says, what did you do? And I said, I um, picked him up and threw him into a locker. Well, what else did you do? That's it. I didn't do anything else. He started crying after that. Well, he told us, you punched him. I said, I didn't punch him. Basically, they, they were, you know, it was Catholic school, so it was, it was a big big about not lying. And then they they suspended me mainly because I lied and I didn't lie. Um, so I get suspended. So I'm like, all right, sweet. I'll go home, whatever. No, no, no. It's an internal suspension. My parents couldn't pick me up at the time, I guess. And so they're like, you're going to stay here. So it was like 11 o'clock and I had to stay in this, in this room for – till 3.30, basically counting tiles on the wall. Uh, that was kind of what we, all the bad kids kind of had a laugh about was we used to try and count all the tiles and see who could get the closest to being right because we all have different numbers and miscount and whatever, but, you know, that was three, 400 tiles in there. So did that. Old man didn't really give me much stick for it. Just He just said, like, if you're going to go that route, you're going to deal with the consequences if you're going to fight. So don't take no shit, but at the same time, be smart about how you do it. So that was my welcome to St. John's. I, I got in trouble kind of throughout my – high school life i really struggled with teachers that didn't care so what i mean by that is the teachers i I had teachers that were still remember one english teacher he cared but he was he was a tough bastard he was strict he was disciplined there was no no gray area with him it was do your work respect me i respect you but he cared he cared about his students he cared about them getting better i think he was from pakistan or, or or somewhere down that way and um Great dude, but all the other students hated him. They were intimidated by him. They hated him, and I loved him, man. And they were my kind of teachers. If I knew you cared, um, no matter how hard you were on me, I kind of I bought into it. Um, the ones that I hated were the ones that were ticking boxes. Let me get through my day. Don't hassle me. You know, I'm just basically just clocking in and clocking out. You can tell they they're just there. It's a job for them. I hated them. Could not stand them, and um, got into it with them. So used to be the class clown at times. I was that that one kid that would yell out one liners sometimes. The teacher says something silly and say something funny, and uh, um, the whole classroom starts laughing. So I'd get I get sent a time out a fair bit, and then I didn't do well to threats. So you know, one teacher threatened me and said, "If you don't shut up, I'm going to send you to time out." And I'd basically be like, "Send me to time out. I don't care." whole class laughs and then I have to go to timeout. <laughs> so do, do stupid shit like that. And so I guess I had this a black book at the school of just doing all that kind of dumb stuff. So we get beyond that. I mean, uh, uh, the, the only other thing I'll say about the bullying is I'm walking somewhere and, and there's like a year 11, year 11s or 12s and it's like the nerdier crew, year 11s and 12s. They, you could tell they were the nerdier crew. There was like three, four or five of them that always hung together. I was already having a bad day about some shit, I don't know, and um, one of the regular kids in that group gives me the, you know, hey, you lanky cunt, huh? you know, they all laugh and I'm like, bro, not you. Like, I'm not taking it from you. Like, some of the other dudes that I know, like if I arc up, will probably do some damage to me. Okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll put my head down and walk on. Not you, bro. And then, you know, this dude was on my bus route. He used to catch my bus. So all I had in my mind the rest of that day was this guy's going to be on my bus. It's going to end today. I'm not going to do that ever again to me. And um, we get on the bus. For those of the court public transport, trains or buses or whatever, like you get on a bus at the start and it's basically standing room only. Um, so all the seats are taken, you get on. So the bus used to start at Danong train station. So it would fill up with all the people from the train and then it would be like five stops from there. So by the time we're getting on that bus, like you're, you're standing up half the time. So I didn't know if it was on the bus or not. Bus starts to clear out as you get closer to, to the end of the end of the last stop, which was in Endeavour Hills. And we're all sitting down, probably the last 10 stops, and he's on the bus. So I start just – I've just locked eyes on him the whole bus trip for the last the, the next 10 minutes. 
and we get to we get to my bus stop. He knows it's my stop. Someone rings the bell. A couple of my mates get off. Bogues are coming, and I'm gonna stay on. Just eyes locked on this dude. So he he's now like, why isn't this dude getting off the bus? And why is he staring at me? And he's he's in year eleven or twelve. I think it was year eleven, and I was I was year seven. You know, I think I was year eight. And um, so then the next stop's his. He stands up. I stand up. He's about to get off, and I'm about to get off. I'm basically mirroring him. And then he he decides I'm not going to get off. Something's going on here. So he he sits back down. I sit back down. The bus ends up going to its last stop, which was my mate Daniel's stop. He gets to that last stop. And he gets off finally. And as soon as I get off with him, it's just me and him and Daniel. And I just left my mate alone. I didn't want him to be involved. And I start walking towards this dude and he's already apologizing. He's already half crying. I gave him one on the chin and he never he never um, said anything to me ever again. His mates never said anything to me ever again. And that was kind of, I don't know if it's a good example to set, but that's how things were handled back then. And the way, the only way you could really kind of, you know, stand your ground on certain things. but. I think um, being bullied by a lot of a lot of people at the time, I think he copped a bit of the wrath of it, even though there were probably bigger kids I could have went after, but he copped a little bit of it, and that's just the way it went. Um, so high school, lunchtime, it was basketball, soccer for me mainly. Um, played a lot of soccer with all the all the wog kids, obviously, and then started playing a fair bit of basketball as well. But it was it was kind of hard to play basketball in, in in bloody dress shoes, running around, and you know, feet are hurting and all that kind of stuff. So you try to stay off your feet as much as you could to a training which was after school, <clears throat> for me, girls, really late bloomer when it came to girls. Had no interest really early on, and and um, mainly that was from my old man. He's like, don't get involved in girls. Concentrate on your sport. Concentrate on your basketball. Don't get in trouble. And, you know, I had, had a few classmates that got girls pregnant in year 10, 11, whatever, and um, I was never one of those guys. I, I wasn't interested at all and always had that mindset of my dad basically said, once you, once you start, you know, once you become professional and you make it, You'll have you know any girl you want essentially is, is you know the old wog talk. So wasn't really involved with girls too much. Didn't really party too much. Didn't do any. Of that. Went to, went to a little bit of it, but it wasn't something that I was interested in heavily because Saturday nights were school party nights. Sunday morning was training, so I'd be like, I'll just go to sleep and go to training. So that was never on the top of my list. But yeah, real, real strict school. So the school bus trips were always always fun. Just talking about those, I, I still know every stop from Endeavour Hills, driving through Dufton. To get to the school in Dandenong and then and then coming back, I can tell you where the bus would stop that whole route. I could tell you which which bus stop had some sketchy people or some junkies that would come on and probably have some 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 things on them. I could tell you which bus stop had people that would come on that would potentially roll you for whatever you've got on you. I, I knew the bus stop that had a little old lady that was really sweet. I could tell you all that, and that's how much I caught the bus. So an interesting tidbit to that. It goes into my business aspirations as a young fella. Back in the day, they had um, cardboard kind of bus tickets. They weren't, you know, they weren't electronic. So these these red rectangular cardboard um, tickets, and they had on one side of it, they had um, the months of the year, and on down the side, bottom and other side, they had days of the month one through thirty one. Right. So basically, a bus driver had a hole punch. You'd buy a ticket. He'd hole punch. If you bought a day pass, he'd hole punch December seven, hole hole. Right, so us silly kids, we, we figured out a way to forge those. It was, it was very very simple. You get a ticket that's stamped December seven. You get a ticket that's stamped July twentieth, and you glue them together. It covers all the holes up, and then all you got to do is find a hole punch at school and then punch your today's date in, and you got you know. So we would basically scoop up all the tickets on the buses because as soon as you get on a bus, especially a school bus, everyone 
that's headed home would would show their ticket to the bus driver and then get on and throw them on the floor. This is rubbish, essentially. So me and my mates would just scoop them all up and then just have we'd have free bus trips for the whole year. We'd be getting money from our parents. You know, I think at one point it was a daily pass, is what they called it. It was like a buck twenty or a buck fifty. So you know, you do the math, we'd save you know six, seven, eight dollars a week, which went in our pockets to do dumb shit with elsewhere. So that was my first foray into some creative um, business practices. Um, the second one which is an interesting one. I started, um, I saved up some money to buy a CD burner and I had a, um, a Sega Dreamcast. I got a Sega Dreamcast for my, my birthday. Couldn't figure out how to burn these CDs because the Sega Dreamcast was a DVD CD and I, I had regular CDs. I, I couldn't figure out. There was some sort of decoding you had to do and I wasn't that switched on with it. I could basically copy CD to CD. So I was selling music CDs to mates. So someone buy a CD or I'd download songs off um it was called Napster at the time. The shit would take an hour and 20 minutes for one MP3 and um, 56K modem. <laughs> still remember if someone, uh, if someone someone rang the phone while you were downloading, it would stop your download. You'd lose your shit. You have to start again. <laughs> but anyway, we'd download songs on that. And then I'd burn CDs for mates and sell it to them for five, 10 bucks. CD would cost me a buck. But I couldn't figure out this um, Sega Dreamcast. That's where the money was, right? Because these, these um, CDs brand new were 100 bucks and the, the, the pirated ones were, were 30, 40 bucks. So, a mate of mine in school or kind of a, a friend of a friend, rich kid, he, his, his mum bought him a Dreamcast and bought him, basically cleaned out the trading post pirated CDs, bought everyone she could, 50, 100 CDs, this kid out. I said, man, let me borrow 10 at a time so I can burn them because they were, they were already burnt onto a regular CD. So all I had to do was get the CD, chuck it in my burner, copy to copy, and I've got every game, right? So that, that's what I did. Then I, I don't know how old I was, 14 at the time, I think. So I take out an ad in the trading post. So- all these guys selling the games generally sell them for I think they were between anywhere from from low twenties to, to to low thirty dollars per game depending on how rare the game was or how hard it was to, to burn or whatever. So I put an ad in and put my house phone number because I don't have a, I don't have a mobile phone and I put it I undercut the market big time. I think I put it in for fourteen dollars. So I've pissed all these people off. So anyway, I'm selling these games from my house for you know three four weeks making good money. The CDs cost me a dollar. I'm selling for fourteen. For, in high school, that's a win. I'm making $13 profit. I don't pay for electricity at the house or anything. So one day, someone calls the um, calls the house phone and old lady answers, I'm not home or whatever. And it's someone from the, one of the trading post sellers is basically abusing my mom and, and threatening my life, like saying, we're going to kill your son. Tell him to stop selling games in the, in the trading post. So like, I get home. My mom's like freaking out. Old man's like, what, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I was just selling games. Like, what's the big deal? He's like, stop doing that shit. I don't want you to do that shit. You know, you're going to get us in trouble. They know where we live. I don't need that shit right now, blah, 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 business. You know, I'm working hard. The business is struggling, whatever. So, all right, cool. So I did it a little bit more, but I, I redid the ad, restructured it. So they hopefully didn't tell it was me and then started selling him from the local milk bar. I'd meet people. It was full like I was like I was a drug dealer almost. Did that for a couple more months and then, then got over it and um, had, enough, had enough money, I guess. So that was that was my first foray into, into being creative with um, starting my own business from home. Back to basketball. So- under 14s, I make the Dandenong third team as a bottom age player. So for those that don't understand the age system in Australia, under 12s, under 14s, under 16s, under 18s, under 20s, and then you're you're in men's. So you play two years in each of those brackets. Bottom age means you're on the younger side of that bracket. Top age means you're closer to the, you know, whatever the age is. So if you're under 14s, you can't be turning 14 that year. That means you'd be under 16s, bottom age. You're 14 going to 15. And a top age for under 14s would be a kid that's, 13 that whole year and doesn't turn 14 until they're out of under 14s, if that all makes sense. So I was bottom age under 14s, made the third team, 
that was all fine. Go down to 14's top age, uh, make the first team. We win a championship. We win a Victorian championship. We had um, a few household names on that team. One was Reese Carter. He was probably – he went to the AIS with me, played in the NBL for a while. He was the the number one touted junior basketballer in Victoria from Sale, and we won a junior championship together with the Australian – sorry, uh, yeah, with the Australian Emus, won a world championship, sorry, and then won a, um, a state championship in the Nationals later on in, in, in our careers. But um, he was he was the man. We won a championship. I was, I was playing the three spot at that time, shooting threes, believe it or not, at a high clip, and wasn't the best player on the team, wasn't the worst, but – I hadn't grown for a little bit and had a lot of people overtake me and had to learn different skills and that was a, a blessing in disguise. It made me really learn how to handle the ball, how to pass, how to do different things. And just got me out of the paint. I think um being a, a big man your whole life, you'd see a lot of kids that were big under twelves, under fourteens that ended up stopped growing at sixteen and then had no skills to play anywhere else and and, and, and quit basketball. And you still somewhat see it to this day, but it um it's 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 kind of changed now with with bigs they want bigs to shoot threes and be more mobile. So that, I think that's a really good thing for the game. So then we go from there to under sixteen's bottom age. I make the third team under sixteen top age. I'm like, okay, so now I'll go back to the first team. I don't make the first team. I've been labeled with an attitude problem, which which was right to an extent. It was um, I was a kid that showed emotion on my face, reactive, passionate, angry at times. If you weren't playing the right way, I'd tell you. If you're hogging the ball, I'd tell you. That doesn't look good to parents that are outsiders watching, right? And they look at this kid like, look at him. He's, he's an angry kid. He's a bad teammate. But it was never from a point of myself or, or, or being an individual. It was always from a point of, hey, mate, pass the ball. You're hogging the ball. Or, hey, mate, like, what are you doing? Make the right play. That guy was open. Or, hey, you're not trying defensively. You're saving yourself for the offensive end. So I'd be the guy that would say it. And labeled as a bad attitude. Never had anyone in admin or any of these coaches come up to a young kid that's 13, 14 years old, gone through adolescence and say, mate, you know, well, what's wrong? Like, let's figure this out. It was always, oh, you got an attitude problem. You kind of give up on him, throw him out. And you know, when you look back, you're like, mate, these coaches and, and, and admin people, like you see a kid like that, you try to help them. If I see a kid like that, you know what? If I'm recruiting kids and I see a kid that just is passionate and he's aggressive and he's overly aggressive at times and he goes over the line once a week or once a month and has an explosion and loses his shit versus the kid that is just he's just there to have fun and he's smiling and he's, he's doing a good job, but he's not, he's not really pushing himself, I'll take the other kid. Because I know I can harness, I can put his his attitude and the way he, he goes about it, I can get that back on that track. I can get it back on that track. And there might be a blow up once a month, but I'll take it. That other kid, you're going to have to motivate him every day to just get to the track. And that's what was really misunderstood, at least in Australia back in the days. You know, I'm not just saying that because it's me, because I had attitude problem, but I, I, if I'm recruiting a team or a coach, I, I want some kids with attitude because I, I can, if I can channel that in the right way, and that's the challenge, right? Channel that in the right way. To me, that's easier than making a kid work like, every day, telling them, come on, mate, pick it up. You, you only give him 50%, 50%, that gets old. Where, you know, you've got this kid that's given 110%, but he, he loses shit from time to time. We can fix that, you know? And, and, and even so, if he's giving his effort every day of the month and has one blow up, you just kind of chalk it in, you schedule it in. There's his blow up for the day. He's going to be good for another month. <laughs> And I've had teammates like that, believe me. I've had teammates in the NBA like that and, and coaches knew that. You know, he's going to have his day. Let him do his thing. Let him have his blow up. We'll come back to him and, and work wonders, especially on a few teams that I've been on, which we'll, we'll get to down a long way down the track once we get to the NBA stuff. So Dan Long, yeah, I mean, the seconds have a meeting with the guy running the club at that point and say, this is, you know, this is bullshit. It should be in the first. No, that's our decision. There's a door if you don't like it. So we left, went to, to the Waverly Falcons, small club out in Waverly. 
kind of an, an elite club as far as the demographic that were there, mainly rich kids. You know, that area is a pretty rich area. And oh boy, was that an interesting club. It was very small, incestual to a, to a point. It was all people that have played together since they were seven, eight years old. It was a hard kind of club or community to for an outsider to come in and fit in. You're kind of always the outsider. And it is what it is. That's junior sport for the most part. Had a good year there under 16's top age. We made Metro 1, which is one below the, the championship level, the first division. Move on to under 18's bottom age and we're in preseason get a new coach his son's on the team one of those one of those instances which a lot of people would deal with his son plays the bulk of the minutes the rest of us kind of play participation type minutes where he just he's got us on a rotation and i was born in one game in the preseason and playing really well and it was like in and out of the lineup in and out of the lineup and it pissed me off and i'm like mate what are you doing like i'm rolling that leave me out there oh, i know where i need to go or this that this that so i caught after that i think the last second last preseason game or grading game and um and quit the team had a mate of mine lyle on that team who was from the sandringham area he goes i'm quitting too and my parents and his parents were friends he was from south africa and my parents and his parents got along well um us you know him being south african and my parents being croatian it was just internationals kind of stuck together that's why it was so he he goes come and try come and play with my mates at Sandringham, I'm going to go back there. So I go back to the tryout with him. I basically, I'm assuming to make the team under 18's bottom age. And this is a group of kids that there was a few, a fair few rich kids, you know, Brighton kids and um, kids that grew up in pretty affluent areas. But I think their parents were very busy, you know, were working hard or whatever they were doing, weren't around a lot. And we also had some kids on that team that were dirt poor. I had a kid from Broadmeadows that came and played with us. He'd catch a train out to our coaches area and the coach would pick him up and take him to games and trainings when he could get there we had all kinds of different demographics had a kid from nigeria a kid from poland myself south african kid turkish kid a few australian kids but just rough and tough kids man like just and and we were, we were that team that didn't really have many parents at games it was just us and my, my parents would come because they had to drive me from endeavor hills out to sandringham which was a you know 30 40 minute trip but we would labeled as juvenile delinquents we, we were that team that would show up before a game so you show up before a game and there's another game finishing and we'd be stretching and just talking shit waiting to get on the court we'd have a boom box playing music during the games and people parents would be from other teams would be losing it at us like hate it people hated us and we're pretty intimidating we had a lot of kids that were ready to go at the drop of a hat ready to fight we were those labeled misfits right so for me it was like perfect this is me like this is this is beautiful for me like i love it so we end up making metro two so first division Metro one, second division, Metro two's third division. We have a, a young coach who's still coaching to this day, Nathan. And I still remember the first game. So we had a lot of big, tough kids on this team. He, he goes, when the warm-ups start, so in, you know, most basketball warm-ups, each team has 10 minutes, let's say, before the tip-off um, in junior level. And, and you do your layup lines, two lines on both sides, layups, then the ball gets thrown up, right? He says, we're going to do two up and back runs of the court. I want them full court. What do you mean full court? Like They're going to be doing their warm-up. Exactly. Run straight through that shit. Okay. Enough said. So first game of our regular season in Metro 2, we, you know, they're, they're about to do their layout line. We run straight through their, 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 their layout line, touch their baseline, run back, and then do another lap. And, and the team just froze. They didn't know what the hell was going on. And people were like, what the hell was going on? And then we just got to our warm-up. Like nothing happened. And there were a few teams that kind of would arc up and start a little bit shock and to shit talk. Like, what are you guys doing? But I... I most of the guys on our team wanted that. They wanted they wanted that fight, right? So that's a point where referees were like, you know, don't do that. Blah blah blah. Next game we do it again, and we intimidated the shit out of teams. Teams would didn't know what to do. No one was really doing that back in the day, and 
the reason I liked it was because it was innovative. It was, it was just something different. So we did that every game. One other thing I used to do and the team used to do is there was whenever there was games in Sandringham, home games on a Friday night, there'd generally be a get together or a, a slight little party that we'd have afterwards at one of my teammates' houses. Um, whether he liked it or not, funnily enough, he was, um, his name was Matt. His parents were pretty chill, but kind of, you know, pushovers to an extent. And I still remember there'd be nights where we'd be like, all right, party back at Maddie's after the game. He'd be like, no, no, I can't do a party tonight. My parents said no, and everyone would still rock up to the house, and there'd be a party. <laughs> and um, that's kind of where we went, and a few of their school friends would come. I'd end up always staying at someone's house on Friday night just because I wouldn't go all the way back to, to Endeavor Hills. I'd stay there and then play domestic on Saturday at Sandringham. So this is where I finally copped a hiding. I got into a little... Back and forth with a um, a girl at one of those parties one night. Um, she said something to me, like smart and true to form. I fired back and we went back and forth a little bit and um, she got a little bit offended by what I said to her and nothing too vulgar, just some back and forth. And so I thought nothing of that. It was kind of whatever. We moved on. Didn't know who the girl was. It was one of the, one of their mutual friends from school. Um, I didn't know anyone else besides the teammates I hung out with. So all the add-on people that would come and hang out, they were all new to me. So- Fast forward, I don't know how many, how long down the line it was, maybe two, two or three months. And funnily enough, I go to a party. I believe it was in Bo Morris, so an area that I hope to live one day if the council allows me to. And I go to this party with one of my other teammates. All the rest of kind of people that I know are already at the party in the backyard. So I get to the front with my mate, other mate Damo, who was on the team. We walk to the front. And I stop and I'm like, I'm a bit hungry. I'm going to go and get some food, just at the local shops and go for a little walk. You know, we saw when we got dropped off, there were some shops. There was a fish and chip shop and something else. So as I'm leaving, some random bloke, his name, I believe was Guy. I won't mention his last name. I've got all his information for obvious reasons after what happened. But he kind of grabs me. He goes, oh, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the shops to get some food. He goes, oh, get me, just give me a minimum of chips. And he didn't give me any money and- I was going to actually get it for him. I was like, cool, whatever. I'll, I'll grab you some. So I get to fish and chip shop and they turned the grills off. Everything was, was, was wrapping up. So they're like, oh, sorry, mate. We, we, we're closed. We're closing. We have a few pies left in the pie warmer if you want those. So I didn't get those. I just went back to the party. The bloke goes, where's my food? I, I didn't get any food, man. Um, it was closed. And I guess he thought I was bullshitting him. So anyhow, that house party, as it would be, was the house of that girl that I got into many, many months ago. So I walk into the party, trying to get to the back where, where my mates are and um, some kid in a puffer Helly Hansen or FUBU jacket or some shit, I don't know what it was, one of those kind of obnoxious jackets walks up to me and never seen him before in my life. I notice the girls up on kind of the balcony area, area of, of her home. It was a single level, but had one of those little balconies that was built into a, the house was built into a hill. So it was kind of like a little balcony area and- he goes, what'd you say about me? And I'm like, man, I don't know who you are. And, you know, you heard you've been talking shit about me, blah, blah, blah. One of those ones. And whack, I get I get punched from behind the back of the head. So I half go down. Like, I don't go down to the floor, but I go, go down into half crouch. And then I'm just taking it. I'm just taking a beating. I've basically got a circle of people around me. I don't know who's who. I'm copping punches from a random person and the next person's trying to get away. I, I don't know what's going on. So I, I kind of stumble or back up into the fence. That was neighboring the next yard in the driveway. Cop a few more punches and I had a backpack on because I was staying at my mate's house overnight. So I had all my stuff in it. So I see a, a bit of daylight and I just leg it down the driveway and down the street. And I'm not, I'm not the fastest bloke out there. And I had a backpack on and I'm just trying to not fall over. And one of the blokes chases me 
down the hill and pulls me down, knees on my chest and and basically using me as a speedball and, you know, I'm, I'm in some trouble, bloodied and whatever, and he gives me the whole, don't, you know, better not see you in, in our area again, don't, don't you ever show your face here, this, that, this, that. So fair enough, whatever. And, and then right as that happened, one of my teammates, Pete, the Nigerian kid, came came running out of the, out of the back of the party, big boy, everyone respected him, and, and he basically – was yelling something along the lines of, I told you not to touch him, he's with me, blah, 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 blah. So I guess they wanted to have a crack. He found out about it and kind of nixed it for a second, but they beat the shit out of me. I don't know how many people it was. It was a lot. It was a pretty scary moment. Um, so when I ran out, when, when he pulled me down to the ground in the street, I really messed up my wrist. I thought I broke my wrist. Everything else, I was like, uh, busted lip, cheek, whatever. That'll all heal, but I was worried about my wrist and I missed about two or three weeks of basketball. I had a really severe sprained wrist and that was – you know, the one time where I got caught in, the, in a bad situation and it was a, a gang called the Hyatt Rats who were around, you know, in the, in the early early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, where, where I grew up, Dan Nong, there was gangs, there was, there was youth gangs everywhere, um, especially, you know, the Oakley Wogs were around. There was a Dandy Boys who were some Islanders. There was, you know, the Hyatt Rats were, were a mix. So, yeah, these kids would run amok. So, basically, after that, my head was obviously on a swivel. I, I tried to stay away as much as I could. I'd still go and hang with those guys. And the problem was I lived in Endeavour Hill. So a lot of times my parents would drop me to the Dan Nong train station and I'd catch the train, let's say on a Saturday night to go hang out with these guys. I'd leave at you know, five or six o'clock. Dan Nong had to go all the way to Caulfield, get off that train line and then catch the Frankston line down to Sandringham or Hampton or one of those stations and then meet up with the boys. And that was scary because I knew you know the Hyatt Rats and all these gangs ain't generally frequent train stations a lot and mess with people there and so I, I, I always kind of kept a lookout for what was going on. I ran into a, a few of the guys a few times and nothing really happened but you know it was a pretty um, interesting situation, a scary situation but one where you know I've told stories about where I've given it to somebody um, in the past and um, this was one where I, I copped a, an absolute beating and partly my fault, obviously talking, talking shit to a chick. Um, I didn't start that but it ended up finishing with me on the ground, so that's just something you had to deal with as a kid. And that was just one of the one of the many, many stories from childhood, one of the more scary ones where you, where you really thought you were in some trouble. We end up winning the championship that year. A little tidbit is I ended up getting a job the year before that at my dad's. So these are just some odd jobs, just to, to show people that I wasn't this pampered millionaire my whole life. Uh, my father, when he had his 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 um, warehouse in Dandenong, there were some plumbers that. I had a warehouse next door to, to my dad's and um, they made insulation for, I think, for some sort of piping or PVC piping or something, something like that, kind of pink fat type stuff. I'm not sure exactly where, what it was for, but I basically, they, they offered me a job just for cash to come in and, and, and do some some work for them for stock. And I, I basically had to cut these, um, I had to get pink vats, which were a meter, meter and a half long out of one box. I had to then go to this this round, kind of like a giant roll of sticky tape, but a meter, a meter and a half wide, and it's a big sheet of foil. Had to cut it with a razor, wrap these vats in that foil, and then stick it on with this metal tape. And for everyone I do, I get sixty cents. So the faster I went, the more money I made, and I ended up making you know a hundred, hundred and fifty bucks for a couple of hours plowing through those. But little did I know, all that shit was cancerous. I, it was all fiberglass. Like I'd walk out of there like itchy and shit. And I did that for six weeks. And this is in the middle of basketball season. And then on top of that, one day I had the bright idea of, of I wanted some more money to buy some stuff. And I bought my own TV. Uh, like I said in episode one, I'd, I'd buy my own VCR, I'd, I'd buy my own CDs, all that kind of stuff. So I ended up calling the, these people that, um, you know, be a paper, paper boy or a paper delivery boy. So I call them and um, say, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. 
and then forgot about it. And then like two weeks later, Thursday morning, I get up for school and there's a crate of newspapers at the front of the house. My route was Thursday and Friday is when I had to do them. And um, they had to be done by Saturday morning the latest. I'd have a game Friday night and basically had Thursday night and Friday after school between the games to do it. And it was the worst shit I ever did in my life. I absolutely hated it, but it made me value a dollar. I got paid $44 to do it. It was either 500 or I think it was 500 or 1,000 newspapers. It was the equivalent of $4 an hour. And it was it was as close to slave labor as you could get. Like, I, I hope they, they don't do that, allow that anymore because it was the biggest rot ever. Like, the, the local newspapers, I don't know, even know how that was legal, but I did it. Um, remember, I live in a place called Endeavor Hills, emphasize the hills. So I'm riding a bike around like an idiot up and down these hills. I'd have to go home 10 or 15 times to reload newspapers to chuck on the back of the bike on a backpack and a, and a gym bag. But um, I was doing all that between playing basketball as well, so just trying to get some cash to go out with the boys and whatever every now and then, go to the movies or whatever, but um, just an interesting tidbit there. But So we move on from from that part of my childhood and we get to 2001, and this is the year I've got circled on my notes here. This is the year where I went from, not from A to B, but from A to, from A to Z, you know, not A to Z because Z would be all-time best, but, you know, A to, a to O or A to M. Um, I made a massive jump, and this is how I did it. So we end up that same team from under-18s, bottom-age Sabres. Most of those kids remain in the top-age team, which is great. Continuity, like we knew each other and all that kind of stuff. And we get to grading, and, you know, people don't know, are they going to make the first division? We don't think so. They're not that good. We end up qualifying for first division BC, right? Uh, they'll make it. They'll finish bottom bottom half, whatever. So cool. So I then get invited to train in the ITC program, in Intensive Training Center. It's an identification by Basketball Victoria of kids that have a chance to be professionals or represent Australia one day. Those sessions were done 6 a.m. Monday and Wednesday mornings. So basically we'd have to get up at 5.15, get there, leave home 5.30, get there, train, freezing cold at Danong Stadium. Like your hands would be like ice blocks and they'd warm up basically at you know 6.55 a.m. and you're in the car at 7, 7.30 going home. Go home, shower, go to school. I'd be late to school those days by like five minutes. They'd break my nuts. All I'd miss was roll call, but the school wasn't too welcoming for athletes. Explained to them what was going on. They just didn't get it. So I was already half pissed at school. So that kind of flowed into, not an excuse, but flowed into kind of how much I despise the school and the trouble that I got into. But so started doing that training. Then I get an invite to state trials early that year and they start, I think it was February or March. It's, it's Saturdays and Sundays, you do your tryouts. And right around that time, we're, I think we're at one of our last grading games for the Sabres or one of our first games of the season. And My dad's at a game and a bloke comes and sits next to him. We're going to call him Steve for numerous reasons because we'll get a bit more deeper into his relationship and I think it's better if we call him Steve for legal reasons. So. He's just next to my dad at a game and he starts, is that your son right there? Yeah, that's my son. I could make him professional. My dad's like, all right, we've heard all that before. You know, we've, my parents had hired me trainers numerous times and to no avail. Like sometimes time wasters, sometimes rip off artists, $50, $100 an hour, and whatever. So my dad's like, okay, man, what, we'll do it then, you know? And he's like, oh, look, I don't have the time right now, but, you know, if I, if I do, I'll let you know. My dad's like, all right, man, let's put your money where your mouth is or kind of piss off and what appealed to my dad about this fellow was the, he was intense had it in his eyes but he was half croatian half serbian he was from the homeland he played professionally semi-professionally overseas in europe and whatever the guy asks uh, my dad for the phone for his phone number give him the phone number we get home that night after the game phone rings it's him he says oh you're on 
um, meet me here on Saturday morning, Sunday morning, or whatever, or next week. I think it was on a weekend because my parents drove me to the first couple of sessions and take him to a training session. So I get to these these sessions and absolutely, absolutely crazy, man, absolutely crazy, just just full on intense. I still remember my first session. The warm up alone was forty five minutes. I didn't touch a ball. Did not touch a ball. You know, I was bring your own skipping rope, bring this, bring that. Skipping for ten or fifteen minutes, stretching, doing laps around the court, doing karaoke, doing slides, doing hops, doing jumps. No ball at all. I'm, this is basketball training. What, what am I doing here? You know, and he goes, okay, you're warm now. Uh, after all that, warm. I was done. I was cooked. It's the most intensity training I've ever had. You warm now? Okay, now we go to ball. Now we go to ball. Okay, cool. But by going to ball, it didn't mean shooting. Then it's another 30, 40 minutes of, of just straight ball handling up and down, crossovers, behind all that kind of stuff, right? Then we get to shooting at the end. Then we do stretching. Then we, you know, intense sessions, man. Like, <clears throat> you kill me. You know, kicking balls, losing his shit, swearing at me in Croatian. You know, people be watching like, what the hell's going on here? So basically, he, he would he would pick me up from, from school every day, uh, Monday through Friday. He'd be waiting at the end of my school street. In the reserve, I still remember he'd be leaning against this Mazda one two one little four door thing. I could, I could barely fit in it. My knees were my knees were all the way up by my neck. It was rusted out. You know, it was it was a piece of shit. He'd be leaning against that car, smoking a cigarette, smoke like a chimney. He'd be smoking in the car, <laughs> driving training. He'd be in Adidas three stripe pants every day, uh, Adidas jacket, just standard walk stuff, and um, drive me home, get changed, get a, get an orange or a banana, eat it on the way to training, get to the Devils Leisure Center, and go at it. There were days I'd pray to God that whatever gym we're going to, which was 90% of the time in Devil's Leisure Center, please, I hope you rented out the court to someone. Like someone playing badminton, someone playing whatever the hell you're playing, rent that court out. And it happened every now and then. The first time it happened, I was pumped. Goes to the counter and they're like, oh, sorry, sir, we've rented out, rented out the court. And he's like, I called you this morning. You said court was free. What is going on? You know, arcing up and sorry, sir. Someone's booked it last minute. They've they've paid it and they've booked it. Like, what do you want us to do? Because we wouldn't book the courts because we couldn't afford it. So we just come in and pay the general admin admin fee, which was two or four bucks, and and go in. So I'm like, cool. Just drop me back home. I got the day off. Thank God. And he's like, no, no. We go to a football field. We go to the football field and I'm doing conditioning for an hour and a half. So it was never an out, and it was always about working hard. He was paid. Very nicely by my dad to do so, fifty to one hundred dollars a session. So it was never, never for free, and wasn't doing us a favor. He was making his money at that point, but he was an influential part of of getting me better. And once I started working with him, the biggest thing was a skipping for me. Um, I was kind of arms and legs and all over the place. Skipping really, really engaged my body and got me to a you know much more coordinated, much more smooth, flowing. It all started to look pretty again. You know, on, on the basketball court, I was. Start to move a bit more elegantly, as they'd say, and I, I guess my jump in that three or four months of training with him was was outrageous. So we go back to that state team, or before the state team, actually, we bring in a kid named Marco, a Serbian kid, another Marco, and he starts training with myself and Steve about halfway through. I've already been training with him for two or three months, and then Marco comes along. So that was fantastic because it brings someone else you can kind of relate to, make jokes about Steve. <laughs> make fun of him when he's not looking and it's just you can get a rest he's doing he's doing the same drill as me when he's gone through it i can get a quick drink break and and get my breath back so it definitely helped from that aspect and yeah i mean marco and i are are really good friends to this day and i'll I'll touch i'll touch on what we used to do off the court a little bit later so i end up making the 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 state team i make the squad i don't make the team make the squad I, i make emergency which means if someone gets hurt i get to go so i'm pretty pissed about making emergency um, but to be honest, I probably shouldn't have made a team. I still it had all the usual household names that coach was comfortable with. I was an unknown. I probably wasn't at that level yet of of being able to 
crack the rotation. So although I was pissed, it was kind of it was a good fire lit under me, right? The more I trained with with Steve, I still got to train with the state team because I was an emergency. So the nationals were around July, August. This is March, and I'm I'm just an average player on that team. And then we get to let's say April, May. I was the best player on that team, hands down, and I was an emergency. And the coach knew. He knew. He gave a speech on their farewell kind of on their last fundraiser dinner before they went that he's you know cutting him is going to be the biggest mistake of my life and he knew because i basically went to those training sessions to kick everyone's ass at that point i was so pissed and i was like i'm better i had that mentality eventually that i'm, I'm putting more work i'm putting three four five x more time into the game than you are and i know it and i come in there to kick their ass and and, and credit you know in fairness to them they they've made the state team they're in and they've got this dude <laughs> this asshole who's an emergency who's just supposed to be there and just chill out i'm going for their throat every training session and i just got better that way and by the time they left for nationals i was the best player on the team like i have no i have no problem saying that they they still went on to win it and the beauty of that was i had every one of those guys that made the team i had them circled on my calendar and i was going to play their club teams when i was playing for sandringham so I went in there just trying to kill them, and they knew they knew before the game they they could see my eyes. I was I was ready to go them, and I played well that whole year and, and got better and better. And and like I said, the the leap wasn't from A to B; it was from A to M N O. You know, it was a massive leap, and and a big part of that was Steve and the time that we put in crazy sessions. And yeah, he he really got me to the next level as far as my skill and even just getting confidence within yourself. Once you put the time and effort in, uh, for parents listening, even young kids. The time and effort that you put in, even though it takes a toll on your body, it helps your mind because you know you've done the work, you've done the reps, and that's where the confidence comes in. Confidence doesn't come out of nowhere. It really does. And the people that are overconfident, that aren't working hard, will eventually fail. But if you're putting the time in, that'll then build your confidence. So for kids that aren't confident, parents that have kids that aren't confident or they're in their shell, you get them to put the work in more than anyone else. They'll come out of that shell eventually, especially once they realize that they're better than other kids that are more confident. It'll all work itself out. I'm a firm believer in, in putting in time. So there's then the story of the classic. So in in Victoria or in Australia, there's a thing called the classic. Basically has, I think it's the top eight teams in the Victorian championship under 18 level. I think it's top four from SA, top four from WA, like top might be four or six from New South Wales, you know, so on and so forth, right? They all come and they have a club championship in one in one place in Victoria, one or two um, stadiums. So I remember this Andrew team, the delinquent team that we had was not meant to even be in Victorian Championship and we ended up making it. We had a CEO or person that ran Sandringham Sabres, who shall remain nameless, who now is an NBL GM. He wasn't a fan of mine. He actually told our coach in 2001 before the season started to cut me because of my bad attitude. Wasn't a fan of our team because we had a lot of juvenile delinquent types that just didn't give a shit, would go out there and fight if we had to. And he was in Waverley actually when I was there. And, and I left and then he came not not too long after. So some bad blood there. My, you know, my father didn't like him. I didn't really like him. And um, we get to a point where the top eight after six weeks goes to the classic in Victoria. That's the way it's always been. It's the way it's, it still is. You look back in those history books. Uh, after six weeks, we were in sixth place, fifth or sixth place. I'm pretty sure we're in sixth place. So we're pumped. Like these kids that that kind of not not forgotten about, but uh, churned and, and, and washed out by society. And um, it was nice. It was really really nice that we, we 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 accomplished something that all these elitist clubs that that have you know private school kids and you know they have a great foundation club and organization and stuff that we long for that we didn't really have to an extent. 
um, we made it with them, right? So we then find out we can't go. So our person running the Sandringham Savers somehow had spoke to people in Basketball Victoria and said, look, I don't think these kids are a good representation of Sandringham. I don't think they're a good representation for Victoria to represent at the um, Classic National Championships. So we get we get told this and we're, we're distraught and heartbroken. As you can imagine how, how hard that would be. And it was pretty demoralizing and, and I'm still it's still a tough one to this day. Yeah, it, it ends up being a, a really tough pill to swallow. They took the, the team that was in ninth, took our spot. <laughs> so, so go figure, but it goes perfectly with why I have a chip on my shoulder and why there's certain people I don't deal with. I've had run-ins with, not run-ins, but I've dealt with a lot of people in, in the basketball fraternity in Victoria and Australia and that, that right there is a prime example of, of why there's a there's, there's a distrust with certain people in that community and, and there's a, you know, you look at, um, I guess, people would look at me and say, look at the star athletes in the NBA who won't come back home and won't help X, Y, Z. You know, you, you got to know the full story sometimes. And I've, I've tried to help where I can, but there's just certain people I won't deal with because I'm that type of person. I, I remember I will at times forgive. And, and that guy actually did, funnily enough, forgive, which we'll talk about at a later date. And that even that backfired. So go figure. Probably should have learned my lesson the first time. So a special guest from my junior days is about to join us talking about um, the Sandringham era for me, Nathan Voigt. Welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Uh, so, Andrew, yeah, as, as you said, we got to know each other over the couple of years that we were together down at uh, Sandringham. And um, I know you've spoken about it previously, you know, some great memories there, some interesting times, interesting people, and a lot of fun that we had there. So, uh, you know, it's it's uh, yeah, a great time to look back and reflect on. And you know, if you would tell me twenty years ago that we'd be sitting here having a, a conversation about those times after you've retired from an NBA career, I'd, I'd probably have laughed. But it's, it's you know, it's great how things work out, and it's, it's great to have the opportunity to reminisce and, and share some of those memories. Yeah, and and that's I think it was a real integral part of kind of. My upbringing, uh, you were a really young coach at the time, so you were kind of somewhat new to it. And I just, you know, give me your your first impressions of me. I know I was an angry, young, fiery kid with a label with a bad attitude and whatnot, but what was your, your first encounter, first impression? <laughs> yeah, no, you pretty much summed that up there. And, uh, you know, I, I think back to when I first heard about you and, you know, as you said, I was pretty young and into, you know, pretty fresh into coaching myself, so... I was finding my feet and, you know, one thing I've, I've been grateful for right through is having a good team manager with, with whatever team I've coached and that team was no different. We we had Gary, our team manager, he was sensational. And I remember one random phone call, he phoned me and he said, oh, I know we've got a spot left and I've just found a, a six foot five kid who's not playing anywhere. And I said, oh, okay, well, can he catch? He's like, oh, he can catch. And I said, you know, has he played before? Oh, yes, he's played before. And I said, I'll bring him down. And then Gary said, well, there's a bit of a catch to it. He, he, he you know, he has a bit of a, a rap. And, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know if, if you want to, to, you know, pursue it. And I said, oh, absolutely. I, I said, I don't know this kid. Let's give him a go. And, you know, I think everyone deserves an opportunity to show themselves. And as uh, history would show, it, it, it worked out quite well. So you came down and, it was great to have a bit of size in that team. You know, I, I, I think, you know, you were probably, you know, 
<laughs> maybe only you were six foot five, but you maybe only fifty, sixty kilos. It wasn't much of you. And, <laughs> you know, I, I thought, well, if he doesn't get pushed out of the way, he'll be pretty handy. And you know, you did have a lot of anger, a bit of fire, but you know, I, I thought that was fantastic. It, it fitted in with the team that we had, and. You know, I, and I have to say, you know, from the start, though, you were respectful. And, you know, it was a really important thing for me to have in, in my team that people had to be respectful. They had to they had to make sure that, you know, they respected their teammates. They had to respect myself. They had to respect, you know, everybody. But they had to play hard. And, and that anger fed into that. And, yeah, it worked a treat. Yeah, I, I still remember, obviously, it would. My my issue is in juniors was was just I'd show you know I'd show things on my face I'd show I'd show disappointment I'd show missing a shot I'd show someone not making the right pass and I think that's where that that rap started for me but um look we had a group with under 18s bottom age I'm sure you remember the the beautiful thing about that group for me was the different demographics we had in that team we had kids that were from millionaire families we had kids that were dirt poor we had myself uh, we had uh, there's a kid from um, Broad Meadows that you used to have to pick up from the train station and, and drive to the games, yeah. I still remember. And I, I really enjoyed being part of that team because it was somewhat the – it was the kids that's kind of society had kind of, you know, spat out along the way. I think some of the kids who were from wealthy families, I don't know if their parents were around as much as they should have been. Um, then you got, you know, poorer kids like like Murad who, who were, um, you know, really working extra jobs and trying to support their family. Their parents didn't speak English and I was in a, in a similar situation with a working class family. So touch a little bit on that and how, how enjoyable it was coaching a team like that. Yeah. And yeah, you've nailed it on the head there. The, it was a really diverse group and an amazing group to be a part of. And I think the common denominator was that I, I think everybody in that group was searching for somewhere where they belong and looking for that connectedness. And, and I think, you know, as, as you said, you use the word misfit. I think a lot of the guys in, in that team just would not have fitted into 99% of other teams out there, particularly, you know, at that time, the early 2000s, where, you know, it was pretty clear to, you know, to be an elite player in this program, you have to be X, Y, Z and fit this mould. And, not many of our players did fit that mould, but um, but I, I think once we did get that connectedness happening and that, that sense of belonging amongst the group, it, it developed into a great team. And I think that was what probably made it so memorable and made us, it, you know, gave us the opportunity for the success that we had. Yeah, no doubt. And I still, I remember you, you gave us a little controversial um, bit of advice at least under 18's bottom age, we were in we were in M2 at the time. I don't know how you came up with it, but let us know. But you, you basically, I mentioned it earlier in the pod that um, for warm-ups, you would tell us to, to do an up and back. So both teams are warming up on their half of the court and you basically told us we're going we're gonna to run up and back once or twice, touch the baseline and basically plow through their warm-up. Um, and, and that was kind of, that came, directive came from coach and we already had kids with chips on their shoulder that were re- ready to fight at the drop of a hat and it was like heaven sent for us. So talk about, talk about, I, I liked it. I mean, it, it was deemed controversial. We had parents on other teams losing their shit. We had referees warning us at times before the game not to do it, but there was no rule against it. And I liked it because it was innovative yeah. and it was something to, to rattle cages before a game. So talk about that. Yeah, I, I, I think that was born from the fact that, you know, we were clearly the underdog going to a lot of those contests. And, 
you know, uh, I think that came from at a very early stage. Uh, we had a home game. and I had a, a, a coach that probably saw me as a younger coach in a team of, you know, sort of guys that just, you know, they probably just assumed they'd been put together, never looked like they would be a team, you know, in their own right. And then, you know, he, he told us, well, no, we're warming up here. And I was like, well, dude, this is our home court and we're already set up here. And he just, you know, he, he wasn't going to budge. So I was like, yeah, we'll bugger it. And this is our court and there's no rules against it. We're going to warm up. We're going to get to the baseline and back and we're going to run through you. And if you don't like it, too bad. And that kind of, yeah, as you said, fueled the fire with a lot of young guys that had, you know, a bit of a chip on their shoulder and a point to prove. And, you know, teams hated us. And I think then that, that fueled us even more and that, that fed into us then, you know, developing that identity of being the underdog and willing to fight for every win and willing to fight and earn everything we got. And uh, ultimately that put us in a, a great position. You know, I, I remember times where, you know, referees would tell us, you know, you're too loud on the bench and and yeah, I'd have to tell the bench to be quiet and sit down. And then, you know, in a, in one game, I remember a coach calling a timeout to complain to the referee that our bench was too loud. And I, I argued back, well, they're sitting down. What more do you want? Like, you know? So, yeah, I, I think we just had that mentality of we'll do our thing and if it pisses you off, so be it. And we'll just we'll battle and we'll we'll fight a fair fight and hopefully walk away with a win. Yeah, I still remember we used to – we weren't the team that had a lot of parents. I think my parents were, were generally the only ones because I was driving out from Endeavour Hills or Dandenong that were there. A lot of parents generally didn't come and, come and watch, but we – I remember we used to get to – I spoke about it also. We used to get to um, games – for like a 7.40 game, we'd get there at 7, you know, 7.20 and we're doing our warm-up on the side and we'd have a boombox or speakers <laughs> blaring, <laughs> blaring. Bef- and while the other game was going on before us and and parents would already be, you know, losing it. So I just remember it was it was an awesome – it was it, it fit in perfectly with who I was as a person and, and I, that's why I enjoyed it so much. But we'll move on. That So that team then basically – we move on to top age the following year. You remain as coach. A new admin comes into, into Sandringham. I believe – I've heard this second hand from from a few people, and I never really approached it with you. But I'd heard that the the new admin, who I knew very well, he's a he's a current NBL general manager. We'll, we'll leave him nameless because I don't want to get sued. But this is factual, so there's nothing really to go to court about. I don't think. But he had moved on, and he'd he'd, he'd known me from years previous, and then he'd come back to Sandringham and apparently told you to cut me for my for my attitude. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think there was a. a a bit of, uh, you know, trying to gain territory there. And, you know, we had our triats and, and what have you. And, you know, I was, I was told very clearly, well, you're not going to have any attitude in this team. You guys need to change the way you guys go. And I guess to me, I felt that it effectively meant changing our identity. Our identity. And he uh, then said, and, and by the way, he, he can't be in your team. I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, Look at his attitude. You, you can't have that in the VC side. You won't get to VC with players with that attitude. He needs to go. And I, I remember clearly, you know, like you, I was raised with a, a sense of right and wrong. And I was like, no, that's just wrong on every level. He's, he's the best player there. He's in, he's in the team. I'm, I'm not doing that. And I think I was, from memory, I was told, well, 
if he's in the team at the end of this year, you'll be coaching under 14. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, it is what it is and see how we go. And I'll pack him in and, and thankfully I'm not the, the guy that, that cut a future number one draft pick at the NBA. So. Yeah, that was my state coach later that year. But um, <laughs> it's interesting in junior sports, like when you have a kid that's deemed to have a bad attitude or that's too fiery, I mean, I spoke about this numerous times. I would take that kid 10 times out of 10 um, other, you know, instead of that kid that that is kind of just mm-hmm. doing the bare minimum and just happy to be there because I, I feel like you can, you know, you might have a blow up once a month or once once every two weeks where you just know they're going to lose their shit. But you know that if you mm-hmm. can get that that player on the right track and actually try to, you know, I never really had anyone to mentor me at a young age that was a coach or an admin person that pulled me aside and said, hey, mate, look, I know, you, you know, X, Y, Z, but let's try to tailor that energy towards being positive and get back on track. It was always, he has a bad attitude. And I'm 12, 13 years old. I'm like, how do I know the difference? And I think I think we lose that at times in junior sports. And I think you did a great job of, like you said earlier, we had a, we had a bunch of kids that just wouldn't they would they'd be thrown out of the door at most associations at tryouts, um, mm-hmm. and, and we had that that within our squad, and I think it really it really made it special. Yeah, no, absolutely, and you know, I, I just think you know, similar to today, kids back then were just you know expected to conform and. It's hard enough being a teenager at the best of times, let alone when you're you know, trying to play competitive sport, you're competing and you're trying to fit someone else's ideals. And, you know, at the end of the day, if, if someone doesn't help these, these kids get into sport and, and put that into a positive environment and mentor them, okay, yeah, be competitive, fight for what you want, but, you know, be a good person. I, I think society is the poorer for it. So um, from my point of view, I it was a no-brainer. Yeah, let's give this kid a chance. Yeah, there's going to be blobs along the way, but he's earned a spot in this team on his own right. And we weren't, you know, I never wanted to be picking a team based on, a, you know, a popularity contest. I wanted to pick a team as the guys that deserve to be there and the guys that I knew I could trust to give me my all and to actually want to win. And I didn't want a kid that was just going to be happy to be like, oh, okay, yeah, we lost today by 40, but that's okay. It's, you know, that, that's not me and that wasn't the, the way I wanted the team to, to, to play and, you know, have that identity. So. Yeah, great point. So we, we move on to Vic Championship, which is under 18's top age. Most of the kids then that were bottom age we pretty much had pretty much the same team. I think two or three or four new players came in. But I, um, I remember we weren't even supposed to make VC essentially. We were, you know, even our own association kind of laughed it off and, and we end up we end up qualifying for VC. And I, I remember the, the story of the Victorian Classic, which I spoke about also. And the way that worked was it was it's a national tournament obviously. Um if in Victoria, if you're in the top eight of VC, I think it's after week six, isn't it? Or something like that, you then get an auto bid to the to the classic. Now I still remember when we it felt like the Mighty Ducks, you know, the movie. Like when we when when we made when we got to week six, I think we were in fifth or sixth place at the time. Like the the the, the glee and joy in that team of of, of kind of misfits and juvenile delinquent label and these kids, you know, blah, blah, blah. For us to make the the top top eight to be eligible for the classic was I still remember it. We were so excited. You came and yeah. told us. And then break us down mm-hmm. break us down what, what our a new friend in admin and how all that went down and what we got told about a week later. Yeah. So as as you said, it was back then top eight and I, I knew going into a particular game on a Friday night that if we won at, at on the Monday morning when when they 
you know, gave gave the spots out for the classic. This is a you know, the guaranteed bids that, you know, we would be sixth on the ladder if we wanted and, and we won. So we you know, we got together after the game and we were celebrating high fives and like, well, we've made it and that was huge for us. And then it was later that week on, on the Friday, I think it it was announced the teams in the classic, and no one had said anything to me. No one had said anything to our team manager. And you know, I'm looking at the list, and I, you know, out of the the eight teams that were there, one to five were there, and six, seven, eight, and nine were there. And us in sixth position, we we were were there. I thought maybe it's a mistake, and our, our team manager he, he said, "You coach the team. I'll, I'll fight this fight," and went and, and pursued it. And, you know, he told, no, no, no. Apparently, you know, when the fixture came out, you guys had a very easy run. And I, I remember clearly to this day, for me, I was like, well, what does that mean? Because we can only play the teams you put in front of us. So um, what went on with that, I, I don't know. You know, I have heard that, you know, that the team didn't want to be represented by us, didn't feel that we fitted the ideals of that association at that point of time. So... That may or may not have something to do with it, but but yeah, all in all, I, I think that uh, you know a huge injustice was done, and a group of kids that worked hard to achieve something didn't get to to fill that and go on and and enjoy going and playing in that tournament. Yeah, and and then that was my gripe as a young kid coming up. Just so there's so many facets of of politics and all that kind of stuff that goes on in junior sport. I assume it still goes on to this day um, with parent involvement and coaches and coaches' friends and blah, blah, blah. And it it, it does – it hurts those kids, you know, the kids that don't always have that chance to be playing for a VC team or or, or the best team or the the most elite academy or whatever it is. And then they they finally get that opportunity. You know, it was was demoralizing for us. I just remember that story. And Mm -hmm. and rumor was, like you said, the rumor was that our friend at admin that had just started that year didn't didn't go to bat for us us with Basketball Victoria. And in fact, there were some, some, some people that told me that our association had basically told Basketball Victoria, like, we don't want these kids representing us. They'll start a fight. They'll do something stupid. And the rest was history. So definitely frustrating. But um, I guess yeah. I guess that that portion of that year, so I got invited to state tryouts, and I guess that's where the development for me, my my kind of trajectory went from. I equate it to not not from A to B, from A to from A to M, and you know it, it really really jumped, and I know I felt how, how well I was kind of go, going up, and I guess you know how did you see that like from from basically you know let's say February March of of that year which was 2001 to to basically September you know how did that all go as far as you saw my personal development Yeah so I guess the first thing was I back at the Australia Day tournament I I, I remember this clearly I Australia Day tournament we you know not not done much for about a month or so over the Christmas New Year break and we got back and I just remember sitting in the first game watching warm-ups and uh, I thought, gee, I reckon you've grown about three or four inches just in, in that month and you, you probably had. And then I, I guess that determination that you had allowed you to, you know, put in the physical work to condition the body to be right and then put in the, the skills work. You know, you put in so much time away from the team and, you know, to this day, I've never seen a kid so driven and so committed to, to putting in that work. And I remember one day you were, you know, we, it was a Tuesday night, we just finished training and 
I remember talking to your dad and your dad said, oh, he's had a big day today. He, he ran, I think he ran five, you ran 5K before school, then did a skill session, played a domestic game after school and then came to our team training. And I was like, wow, that, that's putting in the work. So, um, you know, I, I think from there you, you develop the skills. You know, your attitude began to improve as well. I think you began to understand who you were as a person, which, as I said before, you know, that's a hard thing for teenagers to do. And then you began to do that. And, you know, obviously as you grow up and mature, you know, you, you evolve and, and that's that personal growth that you had, you know, you know, psychologically and mentally, I think helped as much as the physical work that you did and, and put you in a great position. And by the end of the year, you know, you were, you were twice the player you were at the start of the year. And that was testament to a team that shouldn't have, you know, been in VC. We saw you lead that team into, I think we played off in the semi-final of, of the championship and, and only lost by a handful of points. So um, then I think, from memory, I think we may have been up when you fouled out or, or, or something along yeah, those lines. it was against Eltham, so. actually. Yeah, I remember it. I remember that, Aaron, mm. Aaron Bruce and Luke Cooper, and we played in Eltham. We got a we got a rough whistle, and we were in it until yeah. the third quarter. I think I fouled out, and then, yeah, we ended up we ended up going down by eight or ten. But we were, in a, we, were in, we were in the top eight as well, which was hilarious, considering that we were told earlier on in the season with the Classic that we wouldn't be there at the end of the year. Um, so I, mm. I remember that, but look, well, leave us with one thing that you think is just from your point of view, nothing to do with me or nothing to do with, you know, my journey, I guess, what's the most important thing you think as far as, you know, let's say personal development for, for, for a young kid looking to get better, um, on, off the court and on the court. Yeah, I, I think it, it is definitely need that drive and commitment because if you're not going to put in the work, it, it's not going to happen. And, you know, I think in any aspect of life, if you don't work for something, you know, if you do happen to fall into it, I, I guess, you know, it's only a matter of time until you either found out and, or, you know, you, you're unable to be successful with it. So definitely having that, that commitment to put the work in, you know, for any young basketballer out there, you know, it's it's not one or two sessions. It's making that commitment to, you know, that daily grind, day by day, week by week, month by month. and you know, year on year, that, that's how you get somewhere. And I've been fortunate enough to see a lot of the guys that are coached in juniors go on and do some great things. And the ones that do make it uh, have been the ones that have put in that hard hard work along the way. And there's been plenty of talented players. And, and you know, I think you and I can probably think of a, a few that we, we both know off the top of our heads that didn't put in the work and, you know, had every opportunity afforded to them and, and didn't end up going anywhere. Uh, yeah, I yeah, totally, totally agree. Be. Yeah, talent, talent, especially. I think talent's almost a curse at the under twelve, under fourteen level. I really do. I think it, if you're the most talented kid in that group at a young, young age, human nature says you're just not going to work as hard as that kid that's not. And I think most professional athletes in whatever sport it is have similar stories. You know, ever rarely you get that kid like a Gary Ablett in football or whatever that. Um, has just been a gun since he was nine years old, but that's a very rare, rare athlete. Um, I think most of the stories are similar to, to mine or, or have those kind of fingerprints on them. But um, look, Nathan, thank you for your time. I think the listeners will really like hearing from someone from my junior days, and I think it's a really cool thing to do for this pod and really appreciate your time. No worries. Appreciate the opportunity for a chat. Once again, just really want to thank Nathan, integral part of kind of my junior days and you heard firsthand of everything I've kind of relayed on this part of the podcast as far as that Sandringham journey and, and what we had to deal with. It definitely wasn't 
I thought I sometimes you think you've over exaggerated things and, and and put a bit of sauce on them, but he confirmed a lot of what I what I believe had happened at that time, and and um, it was really great to hear from him. So we'll move on to the next part of my journey with the next phase. So then I get invited to the Australian national team junior camp, which was going to be in September in Canberra at the AIS. It's basically a squad of thirty or forty kids that have been identified by by the Australian junior coaches as, as making the, the junior national team for the 2003 World Junior Championships, right? So I get into the car with Steve one day. He's got the letter, and it was a real emotional time for me. I was on top of the world. I read the letter, and I was like, I can't believe this is awesome. Smile on my face. He looks me in the eyes, and he says, you haven't done shit yet. What are you, what are you happy about? You've done nothing. Nothing. You haven't done anything. These, these are all the kids that have, have made teams over you. These are all the kids that, that laugh in your face. When, when when they see you, you haven't done anything, and it was the right the right way to treat that. We kept working. Um, so the nationals had finished in July. We kept working August. This that I, I knew that um, kids from the nationals would then chill out a little bit. You know, they'd get a bit lazy. So I kept working, 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 working. The fact that I even got to this camp was amazing because the the players are usually selected to that camp via the nationals. So the AS coaches or the Australian junior team coaches generally go to the nationals and. You know, WA and SA and Victoria and Big Country and SA Country and Queensland and New South Wales, whatever. And you select them from there. It's common sense, right? They're the best players from their state or should be. You select players from there. I ended up getting somewhat a wild card because I was playing so well for Sandringham. They're like, you got to check this kid out, have a look at him. He's, he's you know, he's balling. And they, they invited me up thinking, what is there to lose? I get there. Um, no one knows who the hell I am. I've never been in all these. I've never been to a nationals. <laughs> so all these kids are, you know, in that fraternity of nationals. They know who's who. I knew a few of the Victorian household names, like I said, Reese Carter, X Y Z. The um, interstate guys had no idea who I was. I had no idea who they were, which was good because I was there to kick their ass. And the Victorian guys, I just kicked their ass for the last three months as an emergency. So I was walking in there like I'm ready to go from day dot. And it was a five day camp, two days, morning and afternoon sessions or morning and night sessions. First day, kick ass. All the testing do really well. Kick ass in the morning session, kick ass the afternoon session. And I get a call in my room from Frank Arcego, who was a head coach, and, and Marty Clark was an assistant. They said, um, Andrew, can you come down to the, the basketball courts, please, the training center? This is after dinner, and I'm like, what's going on here? What have I done? Did I somehow do something stupid along the way? Did I light a soda bomb that I don't know about? I don't know. I thought I did something stupid. That's just kind of the way I thought. I thought I was in trouble. And um, I get down there, and they sit me down on the court. And I still remember this day. They said, listen, mate. Like you had a really good day, really impressed. We'd like to offer you a scholarship to the AS today. So if the camp's not over, I said, yeah, we're offering you today. We'd like to keep it to yourself, but we'd like you here next year in 2002. And unbelievable moment. I mean, mainly because I was like, you're telling me I can come and live here, paid for, free food, free accommodation, and I've got a basketball court next door to my room that I can get into any time. I have a weight room. I have hot and cold tubs. I have physios and masseuses. I was like, mate, where do I sign? Like what do I need to do? And it was really emotional. I called my parents, called Steve, and it was absolutely sensational. So then I get back to I get back to Melbourne, and a little bit of that air comes out of the balloon. Um, I go back at school at St John's. is about six weeks. What are we? September. It's about six weeks left of school of VC Year Eleven. We're at an assembly in the lecture theatre. Mate of mine sitting in front of me. My legs are under his chair because I'm a tall dude at that point. Six. Eight, six, seven, six, eight, six, nine. And I've bopped him. I kicked him a few times under the table, obviously moving my feet and whatever. And 
teacher behind me over my left shoulders thinks I'm kicking this kid on purpose. First of all, the kid is a, a good mate of mine, still is to this day. And second of all, I'm, you know, my legs are, are pretty long, right? So she pulls me aside after and basically says, the whole, the whole assembly, you're doing this, go to the coordinator. Coordinator then says, I'm sending you the principal's office. We've had enough of you. And like I said, I had a black book of indiscretions all throughout my high school days and I've taken them on the chin I don't hide from them I definitely wasn't the best student wasn't the worst student was kind of in between there but I had my troubles and I got expelled for that that was that was the straw that broke the camel's back and, and looking back at it I don't think that was the reason I think they were looking for an out to get me out of there and, and that was the the one they could be like let's just get him out on this and I don't know if it was you hear rumors about private schools that think kids won't get um, kids that won't get high answer scores will hurt their their you know, the school score and they try to push those kids out at some point and get them to go somewhere else. That was probably probably the reality of it. Was I cheeky and naughty at times? For sure. Um, but the thing that pissed me off was the reason why you expelled me was a shitty reason. That's a shit story to tell. I got expelled for kicking a student under it. Give me, give me something a bit better. Um, but so I get expelled. Problem being, yeah, a scholarship. So my dad comes down to school. He meets with the principal, my mum, my dad, principal meet. He then hears the principal out what I've done over the last four or five years. Uh, my dad agrees that I've been a bit of a dickhead and he goes, look, you won't hear a peep from my son again. I give you my word. And once I heard that, I knew I was in some trouble. If I had to go back to school, that it was masking masking tape over my mouth and no more messing around, and which was fair enough. He finishes that. Principal says, "Look, well, yeah, we, we'd like you to move on." He goes, "Look, my son has a scholarship to the AS. He has a chance to be one of one of Australia's best athletes. He has a chance to go to the next level. This could jeopardise it if they found out he's got expelled." And he point blank looked my dad in the face and said, "I really don't care. Time to move on. Like, we don't want you here." And my dad was was fuming. He, he to, I still remember he told me to leave the room, and left. it was him and my mom in there, and he gave the principal his peace of mind. And yeah, anyway, I mean, that school ended up having other issues that they were dealing with throughout history that I'd found out about, with, you know, under his watch, um, which, are, which are public. So that's a whole separate issue. Um, so not the most upstanding citizen. But so then I get expelled. I'm like, okay. So we start calling schools, basically getting laughed off the phone. There's six weeks left of VCE. We can't take you right now. You have to get uniforms, mate. You know, we're laughed out of the room. So luckily enough, school called Cleveland Secondary College. It's now defunct, completely gone. My sister went there for her VCE. Very rough school. They let me in because of my sister. They said, oh, we know your name. We know the family. We'll let you in, right? Six weeks. I was the best student there when I got there because this was a, this was a school that accepted all the expelled kids from all the local areas, all the local schools. This is the one one school that would be like your last last chance high, right? So I get there and I'm not the best student at the last school. I'm not the worst student, but I'm I'm decent. I'm I'm, I'm average, you know, B, B B C student, and I'm killing it, man. Like I'm like I'm like a nerd at that school, basically, with all the other kids there. <laughs> uh, even the teachers were like, "What did you get expelled for? You're fine. Like you you know you're a good kid." And um, it was a it was prominently Albanian school, uh, Albanian area, and. Every day there was something going on. There was there was different ethnic gangs coming to bash the Albanians. Then the Albanians would bring their gangs and bash someone else. And and then it just it was a crazy crazy time. I didn't get involved in any of it because don't forget I had my friend Steve waiting at the front of the school smoking his cigarette. We have to go off to training, but um I kind of stayed away from it. I, I literally tried to keep my head down as much as I could, knowing that I couldn't mess up my opportunity to um to go to yeah yes to an extent. One tidbit was I was in year 11. I'd actually bought my dad. He always had a deal with my sister and I that he would help. Whatever you save up cash-wise, he'd match to help you buy a first car. So I'd saved up like, I think I'd saved up 1,500 or two grand. So that equals four grand, or maybe a little bit more. And um, found a, a VS Berliner Commodore 
No, sorry, it was a VR, but Lena Commodore Red. I still got the photo of it somewhere. Sensational car for me. And um, I think it was like seven grand. So I didn't have enough, but we ended up, my dad's like, look, you have two grand saved. You owe 3,500 or four grand. Let's say it's eight grand. You're going to pay me back that difference and I'll match the rest. So done. Buy the car. I'm only 16 at the time, 16, 17 years old. So um, I, I basically do my learners on that car and whatever. And so what I started doing at Cleveland, I used to start going to school late. So the, the, the old man would go to work. He'd leave at like 7.45. The old lady would leave about 8.20, 8.30. So what I started doing was I'd leave like right after my mum and I'd take the car. I'd drive myself to school in year 11 <laughs> without a license. I was a good driver though, um, but I used to drive myself to school, basically park the car. Like half of the people looking at me like, how are you driving a car right now? Oh, no, I got some special license from South, you know, went to South Australia. I was 16, six months at that time or 17. I got it down there and- um, that's kind of what I did for like a good two or three, I think two or three, four weeks. I did that. <clears throat> so then one day, I had a half day, 12.30 start, finished at 3.30 in BC. I go, I come back, I drive home and my mum's car's in the driveway. I'm like, oh shit, I'm into trouble. But we only had the car for maybe two or three months. So my mum wasn't used to seeing it all the time in the driveway. So I didn't even notice it was gone. So I parked down the street and I walk in the house and my mum goes, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, I just, just came back from school. How'd you get back so fast? I'm, how'd you get on the bus and blah 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 i'm like oh look i came home a bit earlier i had a headache and i just took the car real quick to the milk bar to get some panadol and like bullshit lie that was the only excuse i could think of and she's like losing her shit mainly just because of the insurance like oh, i would have been insured if you hit anybody so then my old man realized that i was taking the car out so then whenever they used to leave the house my old man would um his mechanic so obviously he'd, he'd do something to mess with the battery or he'd, he'd take the terminals off or did something that i didn't know and the car wouldn't start or they hide the keys half the time i'd leave the keys there but he'd do something to the car so i couldn't start it so that was um that was interesting as far as I was supposed to behave as much as I could, but still doing dumb shit. And then that leads into hanging out with my old mate, Marco, who I'm still really good friends with today. Like I said, Serbian fella, great dude. Like I said, we're not supposed to not supposed to get along. When you look at um, what's going on today about, you know, people being punished for what their ancestors did, I always laugh to an extent because Marco and I, Marco, Serbian, me, Croatian, our families were, were throwing grenades at each other during our lifetime. Not not in eighteen hundred, not in nineteen oh one, in our lifetime, nineteen ninety three. You know, Croatia and Serbia was at war. We're supposed to hate each other, and I know people in the Croatian community will not like me to being friends with a Serbian, and 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 vice versa. He'll have people in his community because most of the really nationalistic, proud Croatians and Serbians, they're generally living in Australia and America and Canada. The Croatians in Croatia and the Serbians in Serbia right now, they're they're trying to buy a loaf of bread and get milk on the table and get food for their kids. They're, they're done with all the war stuff. Now, there is people there that were in the war that are a little bit older than me and 50, 60, that, that it's a bit more of a touchy subject and it's something that I'll never forget or really forgive. And you understand that to an extent because they were on the front lines and saw brothers and cousins and friends die. But as far as the lucky ones like first-generation Australian Croatian background didn't experience that, but heard it, heard the phone calls from relatives with bombs falling. If we can get over it, Marco and I and be really good friends because he's a good person. I think people can um, get over the, get over the other stuff that's happened 100 years ago. That's my opinion on that. But anyway, so Marco um, and his family and, and my family, we would all always commute, kind of alternate commutes to state tryouts. You know, he, play, he played with me in state under 20s. So one weekend, my parents would drive us all to, 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 to the trainings. One weekend, his parents would. And Marco's dad was was hilarious. He was, um, you know, heavy accent, very, very tall, loved basketball. And whatever Steve said, our trainer um, was gospel. He was God. He was whatever he says goes. And, and Steve was huge on stretching. 
like I said earlier, um, he would, you know, make a stretch 30, 40 minutes sometimes and aggressive stretching, you know, we to the point of pain. I don't know if it was too good for us back then, but um, that's kind of what we did. So Marco's dad then relayed that whenever I'd go stay at their house, it was making a stretch before we went to bed. We wake up in the morning sometimes and he'd try to make a stretch and, and Marco would have to tell him, man, piss off, like leave us alone, man. We're not stretching. And he was a quirky fella and awesome dude, good heart. The other funny thing he used to do, he used to make us take a shot of uh, – apple cider vinegar now this is in the early 2000s so i believe now it's a fad i know i i still drink it to this day it's supposed to be really good for your gut bacteria and all that kind of stuff it's 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 a tough it's a tough swallow like a very strong spirit on steroids for those of you who had, haven't had it but um he used to make us shoot this apple cider vinegar as kids man so you know we're kids especially back then loaded up with nice sugary drinks that taste great and everything's kind of tasting good and it was kind of the the you know when junk food was really peaking so everything everything you you kind of ate tasted really good <laughs> this dude's giving us apple cider vinegar because it's going to make us professional basketballers but that was his mentality and it was hilarious so he'd make us do that and um yeah i still remember it to this day and, and then we all you know we'd, we'd drive training the next day and you know if you happen to have a good training session or playing well it was the the stretching and the apple cider vinegar and that was that was life with Wong families man it was absolutely hilarious and just just a really good memory to bring up so marco introduces me to the tab in the world of the tab and he teaches me how we, we go to his his house he lived in hughesdale right near the hughesdale train station oakley area and there was a tab there he was coming here with me and we had coins in our pockets basically 10 11 whatever we had and, and he, he taught me how to fill in the, the the gambling docket the gambling cards you know he'd be like teaching me greyhounds box ones always always a good good underdog bet if they're if they're an outsider and, and then we do horse racing and harness racing and basically got like got me addicted to a point where i was a compulsive gambler like but only with pocket money because i was a kid <laughs> so if this happened to me now with the money that i have you know god knows where i'd be at but so i started going to to tab's as a 16, 17 year old, and we'd be putting money on whatever. And if we have a big night, you know, we, we put 50 cent bets on trifectas that were, you know, a couple hundred to one. Still remember, get hit one that was, you know, a couple hundred to one at 50 cents, and you, you went a hundred bucks, and that was like a million dollars to us. We'd go to go get a nice meal at Burger, uh, at Hungry Jack's, and, um, you know, then go, go to the cinemas or, or whatever we did. And, um, it was just amazing the, the things that we did. But so then Marco, somehow got got a hold of um id templates from america for driver's licenses so back then they weren't plastic cards you could basically print out these templates type in all your data your name your date of birth print it out there'd be a, a thing for your photo so we'd go to the passport the passport people take the passport photos take a photo of ourselves cut it out stick it on there go to a laminate a store that laminates uh laminates things like office works and get this card laminated we have a we have a legit ID, fake id so that was usually how we got into places tab would never ask for an id but we'll go we'll then go on a crown casino at like 16 17 and playing roulette and really gambling with basically pocket money and that's kind of what we did at crown we'd hang in the city as much as we could back then catch the train in and you know do all, all that fun stuff the other one i did i had i was born in 1984 so on my learner permit i scratched the four into a one and then was born in 1981 so that that worked for a long time as well unless they put it under a bright light and they're all screwed but thankfully i got my gambling habit out early and so much so that that year in 2001 when i when i made the got the AS scholarship i used to go to the endeavor hills tab by myself a lot that's how bad it was i'd go with like 11 bucks if i had it and spend three or four hours there putting 50 cent bets here and there and um firstly it got to a point where we went to the one in hughesdale and these two this old wog bloke gave me and marco like 20 bucks each and basically told us to piss off like don't gamble you're too young go away here take this go away 
So that was funny. And then so I started going on the interviews on by myself, even without Marco. And that's when I had the AIS scholarship. So the local paper does a um does an article on me and a, a full page spread, my photo, and it's it's like sixteen or seven sixteen year old prodigy or seventeen year old prodigy, right? So I, I get to I go to the TAB one day, I punch my um I put my um my bets in, my betting card in through the scanner, and the chick cancels it on the other side. And I'm just like not paying attention. I look up at her and she's looking at me and <laughs> pointing down to the, the table and it's a newspaper article uh, wide open on the desk. It has the headline. You know, I think it was 17-year-old basketball prodigy. I'm like, fuck. So I just looked at her. I said, I got you. I'll see you later. <laughs> she's like, yeah. Just laughed, walked out, but it didn't stop me. So then I got on a bus and went to the TAB in Dandenong and gambled there a bit more. My parents don't even know any of this, um, so the first time they'll hear about it all. But yeah, you know, start putting bets on all kinds of dumb shit. But I was I was a compulsive gambler. I was addicted to gambling at, at 16, 17 years old, and thankfully it was with the twenty or thirty dollars I got a week in pocket money and got that out of my system really quick. I still love a gamble. I don't gamble against um, the house anymore. I play mainly play poker. That's my main form of gambling. I'll make bets every now and then, but I don't I don't gamble against the house. I learned my lesson um, there. So I got that out of my system early. Um, and then for the rest of that year, school finished. Didn't get in any more trouble, thankfully. Kept my head low, kept training with with good old Steve. And then um, 2000, end of 2001, started that 2002. It was, it was time to pack my bags and move on to Canberra. So that wraps up episode two, a long-winded one. A lot in there, a lot to get through. Appreciate everyone subscribing to Rogue Bogues. Remember all the socials, Rogue Bogues, one word. Um, our scri- subscriber numbers actually increasing by the minute. Thank you for all your support. Thanks for getting Rogue with us. See you next time.